Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Yi Mingha. Among the most famous pieces of Chinese art is the Qingming Shanghe Tu, known in English as Along the River During the Qingming Festival. It is attributed to a Song Dynasty painter in the 12th century and captures various aspects of daily life in the northern Song capital city of Kaifeng, also known at the time as Bianjing or Dongjing. The painting depicts a bustling commercial city where people from all walks of life and all levels of society mingle together. Indeed, during the Northern Song period, Kaifeng became a huge commercial center and its population grew to an unprecedented level, with more than 1 million residents and hundreds of thousands of soldiers. It was the most populous capital city in Chinese history and by far the most populous city in the world at the time. It goes without saying then that supplying such a city would have had a huge impact on the environment and ecology of China. To shed more light on this issue, I spoke to Dr. Yuan Chen, a postdoctoral associate at the Franklin Humanities Institute and Global Asia Initiative at Duke University. She received her PhD from Yale University and was also a visiting professor at Boston College. Her current research focuses on the environmental history of pre-modern and early modern East Asia, and she is working on a book manuscript that seeks to explore the environmental changes of middle period China from the view of the imperial capital of Kaifeng and Kaifeng's ecological and economical connections with its diverse supplying regions in China and beyond. Her works have been published in several historical journals, and her teaching interests also include Chinese history, Tokugawa Japan, early modern global history, environmental history, and the Silk Road. In today's episode, Dr. Chen will talk to us about the broader environmental changes in China at the time, how that was related to Kaifeng's consumption, why Song Kaifeng was so unique, how Song Dynasty scholars searched for a more sustainable lifestyle, and finally, what lessons we can draw from the history of Kaifeng in our own search for sustainability today. So welcome, Dr. Chen. Thank you for coming to our show. My pleasure. So for your research, you work on the environmental history of the Song Dynasty with a focus on Kaifeng. And I want to start off with a really basic question. Why Kaifeng? If you think about the traditional capitals of China, they were in the North China Plain in Luoyang and Chang'an. And Kaifeng isn't really considered a traditional spot for a capital. So why did the Song Dynasty establish Kaifeng as their capital? How did Kaifeng rise from becoming this relatively minor city to a major capital in China? So it has been a tradition for the Chinese dynasties to build the capitals in Chang'an and Luoyang, as you just mentioned. And the Song's choice of Kaifeng as its capital was initially a temporary choice. And it was also origin from the tradition of the five dynasties. So the first of the five dynasties, the later Liang, the Houliang, its founder Zhu Wen, his military base was in Kaifeng. So when he declared himself the emperor, it was very convenient for him to say that, okay, let's just put this place as a capital. But from his time on, all the emperors of the five dynasties, and including the founding emperor of the Song, Zhao Kuang they all wanted to go back to Chang'an or to Luoyang. But there were a lot of difficulties. And the most prominent one was the distance. And uh, the distance in terms of getting your supplies, getting your food and everything. So we know that traditionally, Chang'an was based in the Guangzhou Plains. And in the Qing Dynasty, in the Han Dynasty, it was a cradle of the civilization, was very fertile. It was surrounded by woodlands, farmlands, and grasslands. So it was very natural for people to choose that as a settlement site and to build the capitals because it had so much to draw on. 
But with the population growth in Chang'an and its vicinities, the natural resources of the region started to dwindle. And also because you know, of the deforestation in the lowest plateau, the Yellow River and also its tributaries, including the Wei River, they started to collect a lot of deposits. So that means the water transportation to Chang'an was becoming more and more difficult. So even during the Tang Dynasty, from the mid-Tang period, which was around the 8th century onward, even the Tang emperors, they periodically go to Luoyang, they call that a Jiu Shi, or to just get feed, just because Luoyang was closer to South China. Luoyang was around 400 kilometers to the east of Kaifeng. That's around, in terms of miles, probably 250 miles. And uh, if you are based in Luoyang, you can avoid the section between China and Luoyang of the Wei River that's most heavily clogged. So it was easier for the court to collect their supplies. But even Luoyang was still too far away from the east. So Kaifeng was another 200 kilometers to the east of Luoyang. So it was even more convenient to gather all the supplies in Kaifeng. And also because by the Song period, Kaifeng had already established itself as a hub of a huge transportation network. In the Warring States period, Kaifeng was, it was not minor, it was a regional center. It was the state capital of the state of Wei, the Wei Guo. It was regional uh, mostly, but by the Song period, it had canals, it had natural rivers, it also had land routes. It already became such a prominent transportation hub that it was much more convenient to get all kinds of supplies from not just North China, but also South China to this city to feed such a populous city. So Kaifeng then has the advantage in terms of transportation. It's easier to get food to Kaifeng and feed the court and the population. But I think one of the drawbacks of that was that Kaifeng is located on the floodplains of the Yellow River, which meant it lacked the natural defenses that Chang'an and Luoyang had. And because the Song was threatened in the north by the Kitans, they had to station a large amount of military force around Kaifeng. And on top of that, Kaifeng was home to over a million people at one point who were all consumers of goods and services that Kaifeng had. And there's this very famous book called the Dongjie Meng Hualu, which described daily life in Kaifeng before the Jurchens took it over in 1127. And the author mentions just this huge variety of different foods and delicacies that people in Kaifeng could enjoy. So where did all these foods and supplies come from? How did the Song court keep the military and the people fed? So these grains and raw ingredients and foodstuff, they came from a variety of regions, both in the Song dynasty and also beyond its national borders. There are four or some people say three major canals that ran through Kaifeng. Each canal carried food and other commodities from different regions. For example, one of them was the Wuzhanghe, Wuzhang River. It carried grains and other foodstuff from Shandong. And the two other rivers, Huiming River and the Bian River or the Bian Canal, they carried foodstuff and other commodities from South China. I also want to add that commodities transported from South China may not originate in South China. It was a long distance relay. Many commodities imports from overseas, from South Asia, from Southeast Asia, and from Japan. These commodities first arrived in seaports in Quanzhou and Guangzhou. And from there, they were moved either by sea routes to Hangzhou or by rivers or land routes to the Yangtze River. And from there, through the canals, they were transported to North China to Kaifeng. 
And uh, to the north and the northwest side of Kaifeng, the connections were most overland. Kaifeng received, for example, tea from Sichuan and also horses purchased from the dependents in border markets with Sichuan. It also received large numbers of uh, livestock animals, such as sheep, such as camels, from its neighbor kingdoms and rivals. For example, the Liao you mentioned in the north and the Xixia in the northwest. And also you mentioned the lack of geographical barrier. That was a huge issue. That's probably a little bit different from all those supply issues. The Song actually did something to reinforce or fortify its national border. So it, traditionally, we know that China has the Great Wall. But in the Song period, actually before the Song period, China lost the Great Wall to the Kitans. In the later Jing period, Xi Jinping conceded the so-called 16 prefectures, the Shiliuzhou, to the Kitan people. And uh, so that region included present-day Beijing and also included the Great Wall. So the Song lost its man-made defense. So it had to create some new defense on its, you know, northern border with the Kitan. So what the Song Dynasty did was to plant a, a massive defensive forest along its border, and it worked for 150 years. That's really impressive. And the transportation system that Kaifeng had then sounds very complicated. It's getting food and resources from all these different regions. So were there any logistical difficulties in keeping Kaifeng supplied? Yeah, there are a lot of logistical problems, and uh, it depends on the kind of foodstuff or commodities you're transporting. For example, sheep and other livestock animals, they were transported from the north or from the northwest on land routes. Obviously, you need to feed these animals along the way, and that is by either collecting forage from local residents or graze them on grasslands on the way to Kaifeng. And still with that, many animals died on the way. So only a small fraction of those livestock animals could eventually reach Kaifeng. Other commodities, for example, transporting perishable food, such as seafood to Kaifeng, required certain types of preservation techniques over long distance. Of course, the most wealthy, the richest people in Kaifeng, they could afford to have fresh seafood de delivered to their doorstep, frozen with ice. But that was not feasible for the mass markets. Most seafood delivered to Kaifeng were preserved as seafood. Preservation techniques include um, drying, include fermentation, and include uh, salting. So these were all kinds of things the Song Dynasty people developed in order to adapt to the lifestyle of rely on food transported from so far away. And we know that water transportation also had challenges. The Bian Canal, I just mentioned, it was the artery of Kaifeng. But it really suffered from heavy deposits from the Yellow River floods. So the canal had to be periodically cleaned and maintained. But still, there were seasons that ships simply could not sail on the Bian Canal because it was so clogged and its um, transportation capacity was so limited. So because there were all these difficulties, were there any periods in time where Kaifeng couldn't be adequately supplied? I know Chang'an frequently suffered from bad harvests. And as you said, the emperors would sometimes just go to Luoyang instead. So did we see something similar happen to Kaifeng? 
I think the Song government, what they did was that instead of on the commodities transported from other places to Kaifeng, it also maintained a reasonable supply of storage inside Kaifeng. And that supply included grains and it also included like firewood and coal. So that in times of emergency, it can use its, you can say this as an emergency stockpile to supply its citizens. For example, from the sources, we know that the government distributed coal and firewood from its storage to people in really harsh winters. And of course, in times of drought and famine, it also distributed grain from its stockpile. But I don't think there is any record of widespread famine in the vicinity of Kaifeng in the Northern Song period. There were famines, there were droughts, but not to the point of threatening the foundation of the dynasty. I see. Yeah. So having this emergency stockpile is very important. I kind of want to go back to something you mentioned a bit earlier, which was this defensive forest that the Song planted. And I am a military historian, so this is all very interesting to me. So you mentioned that maintaining the Bian Canal was very expensive. What about the maintenance of this defensive forest? I know you've written about this topic and some other historians have also written about this topic. And I believe in addition to forests, they also dug ditches and created man-made swamps. So this was a massive project. And how did the court keep this thing maintained for about 100 years? It was very difficult and it was definitely very costly. And whether to build the pounds or to build the forests, what they had to do in the first place uh, was to appropriate the lands from local residents. Obviously, there was this social tension between the government and local residents about the usage of lands. So in order to work with the local residents, the, the government also made a compromise. So for example, to build the forests, initially, the plan was to just plant willows and elms, mostly elms, elm trees, and because that could grow really fast. But to make a deal with the local residents, eventually the government said, okay, so you can also grow some agricultural species in the forest, such as date trees, mulberry trees, and um, other fruit trees. So they can incorporate this woodland, this defensive woodland, as part of the, the borderland residence agricultural activities. So that was one of the ways the government tried to work with the border residents in order to make it both appealing to the residents and, and also work its national defense way. So that was how the Sun government tried to do things. I'm not trying to say that was easy, and it definitely had setbacks both on the Song side and also from the Liao side as well. So both sides tried to cut the wood. On the Song side and the Liao side, the soldiers and the residents, they tried to get construction timber, they tried to get firewood from the forest. It was difficult, and it was burned down from time to time. I'm not saying that the forest has been there, has been maintained the same density, the same length for the entire 150 years, but the dynasty tried to maintain it, and it has served its purpose for 150 years. I see. So I think here we can do a little segue into the environmental and ecological impacts that all these activities had. So not just Kaifeng's consumption patterns, but also this defensive forest, the defensive fortifications that the Song court built in the north. So can you give us a few examples of how the Chinese landscape changed as a result of these activities? What were these broader environmental or ecological impacts? So I am not the one claiming that the Song Dynasty experienced landscape changes. What I find really fascinating about the story is that it was the Song people themselves who claimed that they have observed those landscape changes 
and they made connections to human activities. So one example I've mentioned to a lot of people was the deforestation in Wenzhou, which is in present-day Zhejiang province. There is this beautiful mountain in Wenzhou called the Yandangshan, Yandang Mountain. It is a popular tourist destination today, but very few travelers in the Song Dynasty and before the Song Dynasty knew about it. It was somehow simply not documented in geographical treatises. We know there was this famous poet and traveler of the Southern Dynasty, Xie Lingyun. He was exiled to Zhejiang in the 5th century, and he wrote many beautiful poems about landscape in Zhejiang. But he never mentioned the Yandang Mountain, and uh, why is that? And Shen Kuo. Shen Kuo was a very famous Song Dynasty scholar, a naturalist, an official. And he gave his answer, and his answer was deforestation. He said, the mountains around Yandang Mountain were tall, taller than Yandang Mountain. So when these surrounding mountains were densely wooded, Yandang Mountain was hidden from view. But when this mountain became barren because of deforestation, Yandang Mountain finally emerged into view. And what's made is specifically Shen Kuo connected the deforestation in Wenzhou around Yandang Mountain to a very specific, a single construction project in Kaifeng in the early 12th century. At that time, the Song Emperor Zhen Zong, Song Zhen Zong, he built a massive Taoist temple called the Yuqing Zhaoyingong, and he built it to host the so-called heavenly text, the Tianshu, that he claimed that he received from the heaven in his dream. The temple was as large as the entire Vatican City. So imagine the difficulty and the amount of resources you need to plant a Vatican City in the heart of Rome. And this project consumed so much timber. Probably, in my estimate, probably more than 10 million pieces of construction timber. And the Northern Song really witnessed a very rapid loss of woodland in South China. That's where the timber came from. The entire period probably witnessed the loss of woodland as large as the entire area of England. Obviously, we cannot make Kaifeng take the responsibility of all of this deforestation, but we know it played an important role in this uh, landscape change. Wow, it's hard imagining not being able to see Yandang Mountain. I mean, it's such a famous tourist spot today. And to think that people before the song didn't know that it existed is just mind-blowing to anybody who's seen the pictures. Right. Xie Lingyun, he was a traveler. He wrote so many poems about the places he's been to, and he was exiled to Zhejiang, which means that he had a lot of free time, and he never mentioned it in his writings. Yeah, yeah, that is so interesting. But another thing is that you mentioned there was a lot of sheep that was being sent to Kaifeng from the northern frontier. And sheep, as we know, they eat a lot of grass. And you mentioned that when they were on their way to Kaifeng, they graze along the way. So were there any impacts on that front with sheep moving down? And were there any changes to the grasslands in the north because of this movement of sheep? Yes, but I want to put a very cautious mark on this yes. Obviously, the grazing of livestock, they would contribute to overgrazing and contribute to desertification. But modern scholars also argue that moderate grazing can actually help to reverse diversification or sanctification. So I'm still in the process of trying to figure out the forces back and forth. But we do know that in the Song period, because of the consumption in the Song dynasty, especially the elite population in Kaifeng, the amount of sheep, the nomadic people in the Liao and the semi-nomadic people in Xixia that they had to raise had to grow in quantities. 
So because before they were just、uh, limited to their own domestic use, they do not have to consider the foreign markets. But now they had such a huge demand, or not overseas, but across the borders in the Song Dynasty, and、uh, they had some annual quota of supplying to the Song government, both the Liao and the Xixia. And also with the Liao, the Song and Liao maintained about one one hundred years, one hundred ten years of peace with the Treaty of Chanyuan. But the Song and the Xixia's relationship had not always been peaceful throughout the centuries. And、uh, so for the Xixia during peacetime, it had to supply sheep to the Song through trade. And during wartime, the Song actually looted a lot of sheep and other livestock animals from the Xixia. To supply such a market with a much larger population than its own, these nomadic people they have to produce a lot more, and they have to graze more grasslands. And what we know is that to just supply the sheep part of the Xixia and the Song trade, the Song livestock trade, Xixia had to dedicate a quarter of its most fertile oasis in order to just to satisfy this portion of the trade. And that does not include other livestock animals, and that does not include any smuggling or any non-governmental trade. So it's hard to quantify that, but we can just imagine that this impact on the grasslands and ecology. Obviously, the Song was just the start of that environmental change. And unlike the wood example that I gave by Sheng Kuo, currently I do not have any example of contemporary people either on the Song side or on the Liao or Xixia side claiming that they have observed this landscape change in the Liao or the Xixia and make such connection to Kaifeng. So I want to be more cautious about that claim. I see. Yeah, but it does seem that there is a sort of chain reaction that what's happening in the Song is affecting neighboring areas as well, not just in China proper. Right, may not be environmentally, but we don't know how consequential it was environmentally, but definitely economically. So, in your research, you actually noted that during the Northern Song period, I'd say maybe the 11th, 12th century, even a little bit before that, there was a huge spike in in carbon emissions, and then this was followed immediately by a very steep decline. So, why was this the case? Why was there this big spike in the Northern Song and then immediately a decline? So it's a very tricky question because I am still trying to figure out the full reasons behind it. But I would say that population increase was definitely one factor, and、uh, also I would say the、uh, use of coal in China also contributed to this increase. But as I said, I want to be very careful not to draw any definite conclusion here, as dealing with this kind of Quantitative question in the pre-modern period is、uh, full of pitfalls. It's really important to identify some factors, but we should not easily jump to any causative conclusions. So I would say population increase was a factor, and afterwards the population decrease was also a factor that contributed to the decline. But I don't want to say this is definitely causative. I can say there is a correlation, and if we want to draw a lesson for the modern society, I want to say that probably we don't want to resort to the point that we have to reduce the population in order to achieve the drop in the carbon emission. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And this is just one of my curiosities. I'm not sure if the sources, the Song sources, ever mentioned this, but would people in Kaifeng have had to deal with smog pollution as people in Beijing or other Chinese cities? I assume in the winter they would have to burn a lot of charcoal or wood. So would smog have been a problem for people in the Song? 
That's a really good question. So I don't know if we can say it's the same kind of smog that people in Beijing or other North China cities are experiencing today. But in northern Song Kaifeng, people definitely experienced sandstorm, dust storm, or what they call the muddy rain. There are poems about the wind bringing so many dust and so many particles. The wind uprooted the trees, damaged the houses, damaged the cars, killed the birds. So there are many records of that, and I mentioned that Kaifeng was a, was a plain. It had very little surrounding mountains, and it was close to the Yellow River. It received a lot of deposits of the Yellow River, so it has all the element there to have some sandstorms. It had the sand. It had no mountains or very little mountains nearby, so there is no blockage of the high wind. So high wind prevailed, and it was a plain. So it had all those kind of factors for sandstorm to prevail. And that was many scholars mentioned that as a key factor of Kaifeng, a key feature of the geography or the topography of Kaifeng in the northern Song and also before the northern Song. So that was also one of the natural, the environmental challenges that people used to argue against having Kaifeng as the capital. But yes, for the 150 years of the records in northern Song Kaifeng. There are a lot of records in the government sources and in the non-government sources about sandstorms. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know there were sandstorms that far south. I experienced sandstorms in Beijing, but Beijing is it's close to the desert, so to hear that in Kaifeng, that's pretty new to me. But I think it's interesting that you point out that it was the Song people themselves who started noticing these trends, such as deforestation or, or sandstorms or other topographical or ecological changes and features. So, were there any attempts by these Song people to find alternative sources of energy or to search for a more sustainable type of lifestyle, as we are trying to do today? Actually, yes. So, let's go back to the person I mentioned in the previous example, Sheng Huo. So, in the Yandang Mountain example, he mentioned that it had connection with the the construction project in Kaifeng. And in other parts of his writing, he also mentioned that he observed the deforestation of a pine forests in Shandong and in Shanxi, and also in South China in Jiangnan. And he specifically connected these、uh, deforestation, especially the pine forest, to the making of brush and ink, especially ink, because pine trees were very specifically used for inking in the Song period overall. And、uh, so he looked for certain kinds of alternatives in order to relieve the burden on woodlands. And what he found is amazing to me. So what he found is actually petroleum. He called shio his vocabulary, and we know shio is the actual translation of petroleum in Chinese and also in Japanese today, stone oil. And、uh, so he found that somewhere in Shanxi, and he described this as something greasy, black oil from underground. He tried to make this as an ink material, and he found it very successful. And he was really happy about this discovery. He said that this, unlike the woodland, this is unlimited. It is inexhaustible, coming from underground. So if we use this, we can relieve the burden on our woodlands. I know that from our point of view, as modern human beings, we know that petroleum is depletable, and we actually worry about the sustainability of petroleum and other fossil energy. But from his point of view, I think it's not really fair for us to judge him for being wrong about the sustainability of petroleum. 
for me, what I really see in him is a parallel with us today because he says the scarcity stems from the human behavior and he tries to look for alternatives. He tried to look for mitigation to solve this problem of sustainability. And、uh, I know a lot of contemporary scholars at his time, especially Buddhists, they try to advocate for a simpler lifestyle. And Shen Kuo definitely didn't go on that route. He's a scholar. He's a very active scholar official, and he knew very well about the importance of keep the economic engine of the empire going. So he was trying to look for the alternative to keep the lifestyle, but still try to make things more sustainable. Yeah, yeah, and I think Shen Kuo is really interesting because I noticed this as a pattern not just in Song but also in Ming as well. Is that anytime there is a problem, especially dealing with money, a lot of scholars will usually say, "Let's just cut back on what we spend. Let's keep things simple. The less we spend, the more we have." But to actually go out and search for alternatives, I think Shen Kuo is really. Very unique and probably ahead of his time with his discovery of petroleum. Right, right. Of course, he was trying to use it for brush. He didn't understand the implications that it had for energy, but that's still a very amazing discovery. Because he was specifically mentioning that he worried about the sustainability of woodlands, so he was making this very specific case of sustainability and scarcity. I see. So, would you say that the consumption pattern of Kaifeng and the city's impact on the environment was unique in Chinese history compared to, let's say, other later Chinese capitals like Hangzhou or Nanjing or Beijing? And if not, why was the Song case so unique? I would say yes and no. No, because there is nothing new under the sun. People live, people work, and people consume. Nature has been at the mercy of human to the point when we realize we cannot do this forever. But Kaifeng's case. So first of all, Kaifeng's population was unprecedented. Dynasties before the Song never maintained such a large population in the capital city. You mentioned Chang'an, you mentioned Luoyang. Chang'an's population was about half of Kaifeng's peak figure. And also contemporary world cities, and that include、uh, Cairo, include Baghdad, include Constantinople. These cities were not comparable to Kaifeng's population. So by that figure alone, the city of Kaifeng consumed much more than its predecessors and contemporaries. It was unique in other ways. One of the way was the commercial boom during the Song Dynasty. The Song Dynasty was certainly a period of、um, economic prosperity. You mentioned Dongjimenghualu, and we know a lot of cases, anecdotal and also quantitative cases, to support the economic prosperity in the Song Dynasty. In this period, people simply had more fun. And they consumed more. It was the first time in Chinese history that evening markets or yeshi appeared. The Tang Dynasty, Chang'an, the city observed curfew, and、uh, the commercial districts in Chang'an and the residential districts were strictly separated from each other. But in Kaifeng, the commercial and the residential districts were mingled with each other. You might be just a few steps away from your favorite restaurants、uh, or food stands. And people started to eat three meals a day instead of two. And I mentioned the making of brush and ink. The popularity of books and printing means there is more consumption of wood. People in the Song Dynasty they used wood not just to build houses, but also to make paper, to make wood blocks for mass printing, and also to make ink and brushes. And this kind of scale was not seen in previous dynasties. 
Another unique factor was the transportation capacity. Transportation network was much more expensive, and its shipbuilding technology was also much more advanced than the earlier dynasties, including the Tang. And、uh, that really allowed the city to be greedy for food and other commodities from far away. In the town, probably only a handful of super rich and super powerful people could afford to consume things from far away. But in the Song, it was possible for even commoners to consume far away products, and that, of course, also contributed to consumption and、uh, overall carbon emission that you know we mentioned in the previous question. What about Hangzhou then? After the Northern Song collapsed, the Song Court moved to Hangzhou, and Hangzhou was also a very bustling commercial center. It was by the ocean, so it also had easy access to to goods and commodities. Was there any parallels with Hangzhou and Kaifeng? Absolutely, absolutely. So Kaifeng prospered because of its connection, not because it was Kaifeng. And Hangzhou prospered also because of its connection. And you mentioned the maritime connection. Hangzhou, because of the division of North and South China under the Zhejiang and the Southern Song, South China or Hangzhou may not have access to products from North China or had very limited access from products from North China. But it has this very convenient access to the maritime world. And Hangzhou was very prosperous in the Southern Song. So, as comparison, in the Zhejiang period or in the same time period when Hangzhou prospered, Kaifeng actually declined, and it was not because the Zhejiang invaders or the Zhejiang rulers did not like Kaifeng. They actually they liked Kaifeng. They actually kept Kaifeng as one of its satellite capitals. And one of the Jin emperor, he was no longer emperor, Prince Hailing. So when he was still on the throne, he tried to make Kaifeng the main capital. So he sent a lot of resources to Kaifeng to try to rebuild all the palaces. But because the connection with South China was already lost at the time for construction timber, for example, he could only resort to the mountains near Chang'an, actually in the northwest. But we know that the resources around Chang'an has already been very heavily explored during the Tang period and before the Tang period. So by the time of the Jin period, there was very little to be explored over there. So the dynasty had to go really deep into the mountains over there to retrieve some good quality transportation timbers. But the prosperity of Kaifeng was not because of those grand palaces, but because it had such connections to sustain such prosperity. And in the Jin period, at the end of the Northern Song, we know that the Jin invaded Kaifeng, the Northern Song, in 1127. The court retreated to the south and made Hangzhou its temporary capital. Still, some Song loyalists still stayed in North China. And、uh, one year after the Song retreated to the south in 1128, a Song General, his name is Du Chong. He tried to deter the Jin army, and what he did was to breach the Yellow River Dike. And he didn't really deter the Zhejiang army, but instead he flooded the city. And I mentioned the Yellow River carried a lot of deposits, even without such man-made disaster.、Uh, it you know periodically clogged the channels of the Bian Canal. So with such a massive man-made disaster, the a man-made Yellow River flood, the channel of the Bian Canal and other canals in Kaifeng were heavily clogged. So even if the Jin wanted to maintain this connection, it no longer had that connection. And not just the Bian Canal disappeared, but because the Bian Canal was connected to the Huai River, the Huai River's water、uh, routes also changed. Watercourse also changed because of that flood. 
So when some of the envoys from the Southern Song visited Kaifeng during the Jin Dynasty, they were amazed. They were amazed that the Bian Canal was gone. It was not exactly gone because the channels were still there, but it was so filled with silt that people started to build houses and even grow crops on top of it. It was no longer a city of rivers. It was no longer a city of connections. It was just a city, a hinterland city in North China that had very little resources. It may had remains of the palaces that the Jin Emperor tried to build over there, but it was just a hinterland city. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways that's very unfortunate because, to my knowledge, that wouldn't be the only time Kaifeng was flooded.、It、was also flooded at the end of the Ming Dynasty as well, and the flooding of the Yellow River to the Turtle Dirtians also kind of reminds me of. The Second Sino-Japanese War, where they flooded the Yellow River to try to deter the Japanese as well. Yeah, it's it's not the first time they tried to weaponize the Yellow River. It never worked. Yeah, except to cause a lot of suffering for people. So I think this is all interesting. Kaifeng during the Song is just such a unique city, really unparalleled. I think we have a good visual representation of that in the Qingming Shanghe Tu, a very famous painting of daily life in Kaifeng. But how do you think Chinese people today regard the history of Kaifeng compared to other historical capitals such as Chang'an or Luoyang or, or Nanjing? And perhaps as a final concluding question, do you think there are any lessons that we can draw from Kaifeng and its impact on the environment and the ecology? So to answer the first part of the question, I think people in China they want to reinvent the history in many ways, and one way is by historical tourism, which historical cities, capitals such as Luoyang, Chang'an, Kaifeng, they're all trying to boost tourism and boost the local economy. But I think a key difference between Kaifeng and other historical capitals in China is that Kaifeng really lacked actual historical sites. I'm not saying that there are no. There are some, but they're very few, and there is definitely nothing that's comparable to the Terracotta Army in Xi'an. As you just mentioned, the city had been flooded too many times. The flood I mentioned in 1128 was not the first time, and it was not the last time. The Kaifeng we see today is built on top of several older Kaifeng cities built in previous dynasties, including the one built in the Northern Song. And the historical sites in Kaifeng were mostly not from the Song period, with very few exceptions, such as the Iron Pagoda. So you, when you visit the city, you probably see very little actually from the past. You probably see people today trying to recreate or remake a past for propaganda or for other reasons. But the real Kaifeng of the Song Dynasty probably only exists in Qingming Shanghe Tu or Dongjing Menghualu that you mentioned. And、uh, to answer the、uh, other part of your question, what lessons can we draw from Kaifeng? Pre-modern scholar officials usually like to compare history with a mirror. The past is a mirror; it can reflect the present, and it can also reflect the future. I think medieval Kaifeng can offer us so many lessons about the present and about our future. I think one lesson we can learn is the importance of maintaining connections in a modern society. As we know, Kaifeng prospered not because it had the grand palaces or the pagodas or the temples. These were the products, not the reasons behind its prosperity. And the reason behind Kaifeng's rise, I believe, was its connections to China and also to the rest of the world. And when such connections were cut after the 1128 Yellow River floods that I mentioned earlier. 
And when the Jurchen rulers that took over Kaifeng afterwards failed to restore the city's connections, the city just went downhill. A thousand years later, the once splendid royal capital, the largest city of the world in the medieval period, is now just a small city that very few people outside of China have ever heard of. I think we can say in some way that Kaifeng prospered in a very modern way. It was in the same way the modern cities such as, you know, how New York, Hong Kong and London have risen to where they are today. And these cities are prosperous not because they have skyscrapers. They are prosperous because they maintain all kinds of connections with the rest of the world, just like Kaifeng did in the Song Dynasty. And such convenience has brought so much wealth and opportunities to these cities and their people. And however, from Kaifeng, we know that these connections can be very fragile. We know now these connections are being interrupted by the pandemic. If we can learn anything from the decline of Kaifeng, we should probably try all we can to restore the supply chains and keep all the connections, whether they're physical or virtual, whether that's commercial or diplomatic. I think once these connections are gone, or once those connectors are gone, the prosperity of a city or even a country can be just ephemeral. Another lesson that I have learned from studying medieval Kaifeng, or maybe I should call this an inspiration, is how pre-modern people like us today already worried about sustainability, and they also actively searched for alternative energy. Just like us today, I mentioned the Song Dynasty people, they also felt the urgency of scarcity, and they actively looked for solutions for a more sustainable future. Even though nowadays we know the so-called sustainable energy they found, petroleum that I mentioned earlier, is actually depletable. I think their concerns over the future of humanity, their concerns over the precarious relationship between man and nature still concern us as much as 1,000 years ago. I would say that the quest for sustainability has been and will continue to be a very bumpy road. But the inspiration we can get from the Sun Dynasty is that this quest you know, for sustainability will go on. Yeah, and I think those are really excellent points. I mean, when you just mentioned about the fragility of the system, we're still feeling the impacts of it now with rampant inflation, semiconductor shortage, right? All these supply chain issues really speaks to just how fragile our own system is, even after all these years, even with the growth of technology, and especially the problems we're facing today. To see that people in the Song Lake Shenkuo was already trying to find sustainable means to live, I think in some ways it's inspirational that ancient people have this ideal, you know, we should try to do better as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen, for coming to the show and sharing all this wonderful information about Kaifeng and the broader environmental and ecological changes in China during that time. I certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners also find this very interesting and learned a lot as well. So thank you once again. Thank you for the opportunity. So that concludes our interview for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast.